0: Amen. As you grab a seat, you can turn to uh, Joshua chapter 10. I almost told you the wrong book. That would have been weird. Uh, Joshua chapter 10. Uh, and as you turn there, just a couple of um, a quick, uh, one one quick announcement and then just a quick thought. Um, so uh, as you leave today, uh, Nicole has uh, a Kind of a stack of papers for you for the business meeting for next week. Uh, We want you to have a week to be able to look at things rather than uh, uh, say, hey, look at a budget and 30 seconds later, vote on it. So we want you to take that home, look at it. Um, There's also some recommendations that are coming from our our finance team, our personnel team, our nominating team. So all of those things that we're going to talk about next week in our business meeting following the church service, we're going to send you with those today. So again, there's no no curveballs, no surprises. Um, And... uh, we look forward to you joining us for that. And just a reminder to, in order to vote in our church business meetings, things like that, you do have to be a church member, um, because we are, uh, we're, we're pastor led, but we're congregational ruled in the sense that we, we, we vote on, uh, important things of the church and, in, in order to, to know who the church is. That's why one of the reasons why membership matters. Uh, the other part is just you tagging in and using the gifts that God has given within the body. But, uh, so, so as you leave, grab, a, grab a, a stack of that and, uh, you'll be ready for, for next Sunday as we get ready to talk about the business of the church for the next uh, year, as we set kind of an annual budget, things like that. Uh, and then the second thing, which is not necess- is not business-related at all, um, you have probably realized by now that there's, there's major world events happening um, uh, in the last week, and there's a degree to which, um, because one of the nations involved is Israel, that ticks up a little bit on the radar of, of believers around the world. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, we're not looking at, at all of that in a magnifying glass this morning, but it does warrant a, a comment of like, what, what are we to do with this? Um, and, and what I would caution you with, one, one caution, um, is that there will be many people— who will try to pinpoint exactly for you what this means in the terms of last days and end times and all of those things. My caution is, Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, right? So there is a point in which the Father has fixed that Jesus says to his church, you don't have to know this because you have marching orders until I return. And so, while it is it is pinging on the radar for us, and we, we and there is a desire to go, like, where in the world, like, point me to which chapter of the Bible that I'm supposed to look at so that I know exactly what is happening, I would caution you to say, this is not the first time that there has been a temptation to rush to understand all of world history and pinpoint exactly where it is in Scripture. What I would tell you is that the New Testament is full of commands for us as followers of Jesus of what we are to be about in uncertain times. In a world that does not make sense and seems to be running rampant with confusion, there is no confusion as to what Jesus' church is to be about until he returns, which is uh, growing into the fullness of who he is and also urgently sharing the good news of how every person on this planet is made in God's image and how he has made a way of salvation through faith in Jesus. Like, And we are ambassadors of that good news. So in the, in the the temptation would be that we would stick our heads in the ground kind of like an ostrich and go, this is getting really bad, Jesus must be coming back soon. And so we would stop those very things that Jesus has told us to be about until he returns. So that's just my my quick little thing. And, And the good news about all of this, and you might go, I don't see a whole lot of good news. The good news about all of this is, and we'll look at this this morning, even in Joshua chapter 10 a little bit, is that none of this, hear me on this, none of this has caught the Lord by surprise. Whether you go from Ukraine to Israel to something that's happening in a place that we haven't been getting all of the news about, none of this is catching the Almighty God by surprise. None of this was a curveball, and he is in heaven wringing his hands going, oh no, I didn't see this coming. He is, however, using all of these things that seem to be so crazy to us, he is using them towards his purposes, in a way that you and I could never wrap our heads around if he were to explain it to us. A thousand years from now, we will look back, you know, and we'll be like, huh, that made a lot of sense. In the midst of it, it made zero sense. But what he is calling us to do and to be is to be faithful to his commands until he returns. So uh, while I know that didn't really scratch the itch that's going, what in the world do I do with this? Um, There will be many who will tell you that. And there was an eclipse yesterday, so that added to the highlight of there has to be something monumental that is happening. But what I would say is Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven that like, trouble on the earth will increase. It's like, a, it's like a woman in child-bearing labor is what he described it as. So, so like this might be like a birth pain that hits a little bit harder, and yet there have been many birth pains before. And what do we do as a response to birth pains? We get more urgent about what Jesus has said because it reminds us, Jesus has told us this will take place. And we know that on this side of heaven is the only opportunity that people have to hear the gospel and to respond to it. So, in the midst of trying to grapple and understand it all, don't miss this. God has chosen his church, and not just Liberty Baptist Church, I'm talking about his church, in all generations and all places, to be his mouthpiece for his good news, to go across every people, tribe, tongue, and language, resonating, inviting people to find their purpose in him to find new life from him, to turn from death to turn to life. Don't miss the opportunity to to be an ambassador and a mouthpiece because there is fear. Okay, Joshua chapter 10. As we continue to walk in it, we're we're looking at uh, God leading his people, the people of Israel, into the land that he has promised. And oftentimes in the book of Joshua, it has been in the face of things that are uncertain from human standpoint. Uh, so much so that in Joshua chapter 1, the overarching command that God gave to Joshua before he, he, before he started leading the people into Canaan was, Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed, right? For the Lord your God is with you uh, to give and to accomplish the things that God has told Joshua and his people to be about. In Joshua chapter 9 last week we looked at uh, in the midst of of Israel conquering different cities and different nations in the land of Canaan there was a different group the group of from Gibeon that came and deceived the people of Israel into making a covenant with them. All right so they, like they formed this fake peace that the people of Israel weren't supposed to make. Um, and 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 the, the big thing that we looked at in that is that the big mistake that the people of Israel didn't make was in chapter 9, verse 14, that they examined all of the evidence, but they didn't seek the Lord. Uh, and so in Joshua chapter 10, it re-picks up uh, with something that was introduced in Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, uh, as, as the people of Israel continue to march forward into the land that God has promised to give to them, following His directions, following His commands, uh, so we, if you have your copy with me, you can look at Joshua chapter 10. Sorry, losing stuff, hidden compartments, there's nothing behind this, the curtain. It was a hymnal, okay, you know, now the mystery is resolved. It was just pouring out of there. Joshua chapter 10, uh, we'll read it, verses 1 through 43, and then and walk through it uh, this morning. Says, as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lashish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they flew before Israel, or they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth-haron, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ejelon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. And these five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves, pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening, but at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded. And they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining." And he did to the king of Makeda, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lashish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lashish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lashish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lashish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lashish." Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining." Just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord of God, the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time, because The Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. That's kind of a sober chapter. Joshua's kind of a sober book. We've talked about this, uh, I think, week after week. Uh, The the reality of of when, when God had promised to Abraham that the people of Canaan had 400 years to basically uh, to, to pursue their own agenda before he would call them to account. But what's uncomfortable for us, and we've talked about this week after week in Joshua, it's uncomfortable for us in a sense, well, there, within us there's a heart that longs for justice, right? But when we see God's holy justice played out upon sinful people, there's a little bit of a scary reality to that, isn't there? You know, Holy cow. What we're going to talk about this. There's eight or nine kings and kingdoms that fall within this chapter of Joshua. And God uses the people of Israel to execute his right justice in the land of Canaan while also giving the people the land. But verses 1 through 5 kind of set the context for us, and it's, and it's a little bit of a subtle shift from chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Because in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan heard about what had happened at Jericho and I, they gathered together in verse two, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But in Joshua chapter 10, there's a little bit of a shift, right? Because in chapter nine, the Gibeonites, who were formerly living in the land with all the Amorites, they cut a deal with the Israelites. And when that they hear, these other kings hear about, and specifically the king of Jerusalem hears how Gibeon has made a treaty with Israel, he turns his attention away from Joshua and Israel, and he gathers the five kings and says, let's go fight Gibeon instead, because they've made peace. Now, what's interesting about that, and, and I don't want you to miss, it with, miss, miss this part of it, is that those who make peace with the Lord assume a target. Like We talked about this a little bit last week, that, that uh Opposition to faithfulness is regularly found in Scripture, right? So those who want to faithfully follow the Lord should expect opposition to them faithfully following Jesus. But we see this highlighted in chapter 10 that this brand new group of people, the people of Gibeon, who have made a treaty like within the last week with Joshua and with Israel, all of a sudden went from having no problems in the land to now having all of the kings of the land focused on them. Right? like There's a major shift of focus that happens between chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and then chapter 10, verses 1 and 5. And it's interesting that he fears greatly when he hears about this peace treaty because of the size of Gibeon and that all of its men are warriors. So in his brain, he goes, oh crud, Israel just gained a whole lot more warriors, What's interesting about this, though, if you take it in a vacuum, is all the way back in Deuteronomy, and we've looked at this multiple times, I'm not going to turn us there again, but when God promised to give the people of Israel the land of Canaan, he told Moses and he told Joshua really clearly, I'm going to give you this land, and their people, each one of them, greater and more numerous than you. So the people of Gibeon were greater and more numerous than Israel, and now five kings all individually greater and more numerous than the Israelites. And now all of them turning their focus on a people that's bigger than Israel. And you go, that's kind of scary for Gibeon, isn't it? And in fact, Gibeon, what's their initial response? Verse 6, they sneak out a messenger who goes to Joshua and says, you need to help us. In other words, like in chapter 9, he had, uh, the people of Gibeon had placed themselves under the authority of Israel and said, whatever you tell us, like whatever you want to be true about us is true about us. And so there, to this day, or to, to that day when it was written, there were the woodcutters and the water drawers for the people of Israel. But immediately they draw on this covenant, this treaty, right? You just made a covenant with us, now we're in big trouble, please come help save us. Because all, and notice this, all of the kings... Verse 6, all of the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Up to this point, Israel's been picking off one king at a time, right? One city at a time, Jericho, Ai. And now they get this message that says, hey, there's a conglomeration of all of the kings and they're all mad at us and they're coming to wipe us out. Please help us. But most notably, it says that so, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people, he responds, he said, here's the message, he and all the people of war with him, verse 7, and all the mighty men of valor. But more notably than that is verse 8, where it says, the Lord speaks again to Joshua, don't be afraid, because I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Now you remember in in, in chapter 9, the covenant was made because they didn't seek the Lord. In, in fact, in chapter 9, the Lord doesn't speak at all. So it's kind of a remarkable thing that on the heels of that, Israel just disobeyed. They just didn't seek. They didn't listen. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't want to know God's input on the situation. They thought they had it all under control. And in chapter 10, it's, it's, it's notable that God then speaks again and says, Don't be afraid. I've given them into your hands. On face value, what did Israel have to fear and what did Joshua have to fear? Well, I mentioned it a little bit that one of the things they had to fear is that there are way more people fighting against them than they have to muster to the battle. Right? Face value. They're outnumbered again. But I think the bigger issue that they have to be fearful of is what happened the last time they had sinned and didn't listen to the Lord. They had been routed by the people of Ai. Right, like, like they had been completely destroyed, and God—or not completely destroyed—but they had been wiped out. And God said to them, "You will not be able to stand in battle until you deal with this." Right, and here he's coming back and he says, "Don't be afraid. I've given them into your hands." It's a really important thing that God speaks and, and says, "Go ahead with this," in a way that they had not sought his counsel in chapter nine. And so they, and this is, I, I never caught this. I'm going to just tell you, like, I've read the Bible for a long time. I didn't catch this until this week. Right, so we're going to talk about how God caused the sun to stand still and gave the people extra daylight, right? And and, and you know, this is, again, if you grew up in church and if you were in Sunday school, this is, a, the, you, you colored the picture with the sun in the, in the sky, right? And it was standing there, and you talked about that. But what I never caught until I was reading through this is that, It says in verse nine, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. So, so God bringing extra daylight just followed on the fact that they marched all night long. I've never been in the military, but I can imagine like it wouldn't be really exciting to go march all night and then go, we're going to fight all day tomorrow. And then I can imagine it wouldn't be more exciting to go, and then we're going to get another twelve hours of daylight on top of that. So we're going to go ahead and fight for twenty four hours after you marched all night. You know, I've not been in the military, but I would imagine that's not really like, yay, we're super excited with commanding orders right now. So they marched all night, and the fact that they marched all night is, is then as they come up on them suddenly, like the people, uh, the Amorites are not anticipating this group of five kings, this confederation of kings, is not expecting Joshua and Israel to show up. They show up after marching all night. But then... It's not their, just their arrival that throws the people into panic. It's that the Lord threw them into a panic in verse 10. So God had just told Joshua, don't be afraid. I'm giving them into your hands. Nobody will be able to stand in front of you. And then as soon as they show up, God throws them, the Amorites, into a panic. And keep this in mind. Group of five kings... Each of the, like, the, this, this group, stronger, mightier than the people of Israel, thrown into a panic because Israel shows up. On paper, they shouldn't be thrown into a panic. On paper, they should be like, okay, we just have another adverse, adversary. Okay, not a problem. But it's not on paper. Because most of the time when we count our beans, we don't account for God showing up. We just count our beans and say, This is what I have, this is what he has. Might be a wash, I might have an advantage, I think I'll go ahead with it. And the Amorites definitely didn't plan on the Lord showing up and fighting for Gibeon. Right? They just saw this is a people that, that don't know. But there's also a, the element of fear that comes up over and over and over again in the book of Joshua. I, I mentioned at the beginning the overarching theme, Joshua chapter 1, do not be afraid and do not be discouraged, uh, for the Lord your God is with you. And then Rahab says, what when the spies show up? We heard about you and, and the hearts of all, all these people has melted. In other words, we are freaking out, we're terrified. Then when the people of Israel flee in front of the people of I, what does it say? Our hearts have melted in front of us. Like, we're terrified. Like, this this fear is everywhere throughout the book of Joshua. And it's interesting that in in almost before every engagement, God tells us people, don't be afraid. Now, we might just look at that and say, that seems like only an issue that the people of Israel would face or only the Canaanites would face. I'm so glad I'm not afraid of anything. How much do you think you and I are impacted by fear? How much do we do out of fear? How much do we as a people and a nation and a culture do out of fear? And if you go, I don't think we do a whole lot out of fear. Can I just take you back like three years ago? Like one of the defining moments of what we will refer to. Like if you just say 2020 COVID-19, like that will forever be a benchmark of people having some idea of what you're talking about. How much of our response was fear-filled? How much did we see people terrified around us? Maybe how much were we terrified? And we might have put a brave face on and said, it's okay. But inside we were like, well, I got to go to the grocery store. Grocery store. Fear. Filling up at a gas station, fear. It's like just normal everyday task, and in the back of your mind, you're like, I don't know what to do. Stuff kicks off in another country. How much of our response is fear? What will happen? What is going to happen? Does God really have this under control, or what? Like, what do I like? What do I need to do to have this under control so that I won't be exposed? I would argue with. Maybe I not argue in a mean way, but I would put out to you that I would venture to guess that a great deal of the motivation in our lives is actually based on fear—what we don't want to happen, what we are trying to stave off. And I don't mean this in a mean or an ugly way, but just think about our attitudes towards retirement. What it is—what is it built on? The fear of not having. When I get to the end of my life, what is? I was talking to one of my kids. Our insurance agent called, and it's time to like re-up our home and auto insurance. What is home and auto insurance built off of? I said we've been paying thousands of dollars, and how many claims have we filed? But if you don't have it, you get like you you can't you can't buy a house, you can't drive a car, right? Like uh, just face value. But it's also built on the chance of what if. you got to have it. it makes me, It's like a, my insurance comfort blanket. right? just things that we accept as normal. But there, there's a part of it that's built in fear. I'm not telling you don't carry insurance. Please don't run out and cancel your insurance. But what I'm telling you is, is like identify how, how confident am I in the Lord's ability to hold me. Again, and again, not saying don't save for retirement. But what is the attitude of my heart in saving for those things? How much of it is just the, the fear of the unknown? How much parenting do we do out of fear? I don't want my kids to do this, so I parent this way. But it it can be it can be gripping fear. How much do we do in a relationship that is built on fear of not wanting that person to leave me? Like and the fear of what then? Right? Fear is all over us. And it's really easy for us to tell other people, don't be afraid. Trust Jesus in this. You got this. And I think it's interesting that if you survey Scripture, it's the most common command in Scripture is don't be afraid. But the basis is not don't be afraid because you're awesome and you've got this life thing in your hands. It is don't be afraid because there's one greater than you that holds it all already. The only reason that you and I shouldn't be afraid is if there is somebody or something bigger than us that is capable of handling our biggest fears in a way that you and I can't. That's why Jesus says, how many of you, by worrying, can add a single day to your life? You can't add a minute to your life. How much time do we give thinking, fearing for our health? It's outside of our control, and yet we fear over it, and, and, we, and we nurse it thinking that we have it under control. And so, that's it. I just went on a rabbit trail. That wasn't in the notes. Anyway, don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous, he tells the people. And again, we've talked about this at length. Every time God says, don't fear, it comes in the face of something that should, on face value, be scary. If God's not in the picture. If it's just us versus the odds, we should be terrified. But the Lord throws them into a panic, and they start running away. And, and then the rest of the picture is the people of Israel chasing down their enemies. But then verse 11, we see the first miracle. That, well, it's probably the second miracle. The first miracle is they were thrown into panic. second miracle is that the Lord begins to rain down hail on the Amorites. And the miracle within this is it is only hitting the enemies of Israel. I don't know if you've ever been caught in a hailstorm, but I've never like stood outside in one with somebody else, and they were like, I didn't get hit. Like, you're standing side by side, right? It's just like, it's pelting. What's even more miraculous about this is, is I don't know, and maybe I'm just going to plant an irrational fear of hail, hail in your head. But since 2000, how many recorded hailstone deaths do you think there are in the United States since the year 2000? How many recorded deaths? United States. Hailstone. I got zero. Yeah, you said five. Five. That was pretty close. It's four. The largest recorded event with deaths, actually, that's, that's a lot, it's 246 in India in 1888. And they recorded the sizes like goose eggs, oranges, cricket ball size hailstones. But most of the time, hail starts small, right? And you go under a tree, safe. But this is inescapable. And it's not inescapable because it's just a, it's a crazy hailstorm. It's 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 inescapable because of the way it's described. The Lord is throwing them. Now it doesn't mean that He's like literally just like softball pitching or, or fastball pitching hailstones from heaven. But the picture of it is is that He is focused on and targeting the people that are being assailed with hail. And what's more remarkable about that is that it says that there are more who died from the hailstones than there were from the Israelites striking them down. And the overarching theme, if you want to say it, of chapter 10 is the Lord fought for Israel. This is highlighted in the next three verses, in verses 12 through 15. I guess that's technically four verses. But at the time that the battle is going on, and it's incredible, Joshua speaks to the Lord in the day when the Lord was giving over the Amorites to the sons of Israel. And he says this in the hearing of all of Israel. So Joshua, speaking to the Lord, praying to the Lord in the sight of, in the hearing of, the people who are engaged in battle, it's a bold prayer. It's not, hey, Lord, I hope we can keep this advantage going. Sun, stand still. Moon, stop it. Lord, would you allow the sun to not move? And there's different ways of reading this. There's some people that read it and go, "Well, oh, that's just saying that the day was really long and they had a great victory. But verse the, the tail end of verse 13 says, isn't it written in the book of Jashar, which is another book of, of kind of God's accomplishments. It's not recorded in Scripture. It's referred to one other time in First or 2 Samuel. Uh, but it says, The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set about for a whole day. There has not been a day like it before or since. Right? Right? Uh, and, and and it's referring to the nature of the miracle where God literally, we're coming to this and saying God literally caused the sun not to go down when it should go down. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Has the sun ever not gone down in your lifetime when it should have gone down? Has it ever not come up when it should come up in your lifetime? I can look on my watch and it's going to say, the sun's going to go down. Hold on, i got to go for it a little bit. i got to scroll, scroll, scroll. So, Sunset tonight is going to be right around. I'm not good at math. 1900. That's seven. About seven thirty. That's going to be super dark by. I just lost it. Hold on. That's going to be super dark by eleven o'clock. Take it to the bank. Like you bet money on it. And nobody would take it up on it because of course it is. Like that's the stupidest bet in the world. God causes the sun to stop because. The end of verse fourteen, because the Lord fought for Israel. Now if you come to this point in Joshua chapter ten, you go, Okay, I could gather the rest of it. I'm on board with what you said, but this is this is too much. The sun stopped, it didn't go down, an extra twelve hours of daylight. That now you just lost me. Too much. Let me ask you a question. Go back to Genesis chapter one. Do you do you believe on the basis of faith, based off of what God has revealed, that he created everything out of nothing. That he spoke it, and he made it, and it was good. It was perfect. Okay. Can that very same God who just wanted things to be there, and he spoke, and they were there, could that very same God not say to the things that he created, stand still for 12 hours? Okay. So when we come to the miracle, one of the first things we have to grapple with is, what do we believe about God? Not what do I believe about the natural world and what is possible and what I can see and what I can hold in my own hands. It's what do I believe about God? Is, is God able to command that which he has created and it does what he says? Does he hold that ability within himself? Because if, if, if we don't really believe that he could make the sun to stand still, do we, do we really believe that he could cause the virgin to, to bear a child? Do we really believe that he could raise a dead person back to life? Do we really believe that our greatest enemy, sin and death and shame, could actually be conquered through somebody else's, his, namely, his death, burial, and resurrection? Like, which, which of these things is greater? I mean, well, in, in, in the rational sense, maybe it's the sun standing still. But I've never seen a dead person brought back to life, so that's pretty huge. I've also, like, um, never mind, I'm not going to go there. That was, that was a bad joke. I was going to talk about childbirth. Anyway, I'm not going to do that. Keeping it on track for you. Is God able to do what only God can do? That's what we... When we come to Joshua chapter 10, we go, Man, the sun stood still. I don't know what to do with that. My advice to you would be to read it literally because it says, Has anything ever happened like this? It's supposed to be, holy cow, all-inducing. It's not to be cavalier and just go, Well, the sun stopped. Like... Stop for a moment and revel in the fact that the God of the universe said, Son, stand still, and it stood still. Let that blow your mind a little bit. Don't read that just so, so frankly you go, okay. If that gets old to us, I don't know. Schedule a follow-up with your doctor. Like, make sure your heart's working okay. Like, the, the God of the universe commands the things that he has created in a way that we had never seen. He commands them to be obedient to his voice. And they are. It's incredible. And the whole reason why he does it, the whole reason why there's the hailstones, the whole reason why he throws the people into panic, the whole reason for the sun standing still is because he's fighting for his people just as Joshua was told in verse 8. I want to make just a really, really quick... um... Well, we'll come back to it. We're going to come back to it. Put a, just put a pin in there. You don't even know where I was going anyway. Lost my spot, you guys. It's bad. Within Joshua ten, so what happens after this point moving forward? And I'm not going to walk you through verses sixteen through forty three, but what happens is is it's a detailing, a historical recounting of then Joshua and the people of Israel's victory over all of these kings and kingdoms. It's the tangible, like this is what it looks like when the Lord is fighting for his people. And it, and it finishes at verse 42, because the Lord of God of Israel fought for Israel, not because of Joshua's great leadership, not because of the Israelites' great capacity for war, but because the Lord fought for them. But then within that is this interesting tension that exists throughout all of Scripture. And that is that... All of this is taking place because of God's sovereign hand over his people. And at the same time that God is in control or sovereign over all of these things, we also see the actions of obedience of God's people in the process of God's sovereignty. Uh, so in other words, it's interesting that, that God could have, He could have just waged war on the Amorites and the people of Israel could have just stayed in camp at Gilgal. But that's typically not what we see working out in Scripture. That God is fighting for his people, and yet Joshua goes in obedience up to battle. That the Lord is raining down hailstones, and he kills more people than the Israelites could ever have imagined to do on their own, and yet the Israelites are still engaged in the battle the way that the Lord told them to. There's there's no way that they could have caused the sun and the moon to stand still, and yet they continue to fight while the sun is suspended in its place. And we see this play out this, in this unique, there's this phrase, right? That there's, there's been a no day like it or before it or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. And, that's, and, and, and we could look at verse 14 and we go, well, oh, that's all it takes is one good person who can say the right prayer and then God will fight for them. But that's really not the picture of Joshua's prayer at all. Joshua's prayer is bold and it's audacious. It's asking for something that nobody else would ever think to have asked for. But notice that when he asks it, it is keep, it's presuming upon God's willingness based off of what God already said. God said, go ahead and go up, don't be afraid, for the Lord is going with you. He's giving them into your hands, nobody shall stand before you. And Joshua's bold prayer is application of, like, we're engaged in this, we're asking for more daylight to do what you told us to do. It's not something that's coming, like Joshua's like, I know we're supposed to be doing this, but I could really use another couple truckloads of manna back at camp. He's not asking for something that's off of the purview of what God has promised to do already, or what God is engaged in. And so we, can, we might would come and say, well, if, if, if I were to give you a wrong takeaway of this, it would just be in a vacuum, you just need to pray bold prayers. But that's not really the heart of, like, you ought to pray bold prayers, but what does a bold prayer look like? And which, like, why should I pray anyway if God is in control of all things? Like, why does Joshua pray if God already said, I'm giving them into your hands? He's presuming upon God's willingness to answer him. And sometimes we view prayer as pressing upon God's reluctance to give us what he has said he would give us. Instead, like he's open-handed and Joshua is asking in line with what God is already at work doing. He says, this is, this is the prayer, the bold prayer. It's asking upon God's already existing promise. It's, it's, it's pressing into God's promised provision already. God already said, I will fight for you. I will give them over into your hand. So Joshua is praying in line with what God has already promised and provided for him to do. Now... The wrong takeaway would be, okay, Pastor Zane said I should pray boldly for that sports car. That's not what I said. He said to pray boldly that he would grow 10 inches. That would be great, and that I could have my second tryout at the NBA. That's not what I said. There's a recognition, again, that God is ordering all things. He has all things in his hand. And I just want you to see this picture in Psalm chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. Um, kind of the one side of this. And, and it could very well be written in light of God's deliverance or, or his provision in battle in the book of Joshua. In Psalms chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, he says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? You gather this. The five kings of the Amorites are gathering together, gather, raging and plotting the destruction of Gibeon and uh, planning the destruction of the people of Joshua and Joshua Israel. But the way the psalmist describes it is a plotting in vain. It's a, it's a plotting that will not work out says the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Five kings come together. This is what our plan is. And they take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But then notice God's response to all of the earthly planning and the plotting against him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See the way this plays out in Joshua chapter 10. There's an elaborate plan of kings coming together who had not been coming together for any other purpose or for any other partnership before this. But now they come together in order to destroy God's people and God's work. And on paper, really good plan, it says, But the one who sits in heaven laughs at it. Why are you planning this? It's not going to work. Okay, so that's that's the one side. God God is ordering all of these things towards his end, towards his purpose. All like all of the things that are 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 planned outside of him without taking his counsel that seem like they are completely running away from his purpose and his plan are actually being used by him to accomplish his purposes. So five kings, then later eight kings, who are, are, are completely opposed to the Lord in his way, set themselves up on a platter for him to fight them all at once. But they didn't go into it thinking, hey, let's let God just destroy us all together. They went in thinking, we're going to partner together in order to destroy God's people. And they were frustrated in it. So then the, come and circle them back to the question. How and what do we pray for? What does it look like to pray boldly if God is in control and ordering all things together for His purposes already? I want to take us into James chapter five verses thirteen through eighteen, uh, which is, is, is on face value you're gonna go that this just sounds like we ought to just pray boldly and again in a vacuum. But in James chapter five verses thirteen through eighteen, let's spend just a minute here. It says, "Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray." Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so, you, you, again, you might take away and just go, well, that just means we ought to pray whatever it is that's in our heart, and God will honor that. And I want to start with a, 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 a maybe a more interesting question of that. It says, The prayer of a righteous person, in verse 16, has great power as it is working. Yeah. Who who is righteous? On face value, you go, man. I gotta search for this dude like a needle in a haystack. Who like the, If I were to ask you, like, I have this issue, looking for a righteous person to pray for me. Would you pray for me? Like, mm, there's probably somebody better than me. But in terms of the gospel, who is righteous? First of all, Jesus is righteous. He is the righteous one. He is the king of righteousness. Who dies for sinful people like you and for me. People who deserve to be separated from him because of our sin and because of our running after other things. Just like all of these kings in the Old Testament who are are waging war against the Lord. That's who you and I were before we came to know Jesus. We may have thought like, well, I was a pretty good person. I just needed a little bit of help. No, what scripture says about you before you came to Jesus is that you were dead in your sins. That there was nothing good in you that you brought to the table. But Jesus in his great love, or God in his great love, sends his eternal son to die for us. To take our punishment for our sin on him. And what he gives us in its place, in, in the, when we place our faith in Jesus, we turn away from our sin, turn to faith in Christ, scripture tells us that he gives to us, what? His righteousness. Do you ever think about that when you're praying? What, what does our prayers look like? Are we just lobbing up soft stuff that we think that would be easy for him to answer? And, and maybe with some of the struggle when I say this is that some of you say, well, I've prayed some really hard things and he said no. That doesn't mean that he's not hearing, that he's not good, and that he's not working his purposes out. What's interesting is that James then immediately goes into the example of Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man just like you and me. Or human, just like you and me. Sorry, that would be a little bit awkward. Some of you aren't men. You're like, he's not like me. Human nature, just like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain three and a half years. It didn't rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and, and, and the earth bore its fruit. Why did Elijah pray for the rain to stop? Trick question. God told him to. Why did he pray for the rain to restart? God told him to. So here's the question. When you think about your prayer life, are you asking boldly in regard to those things that God has commanded in which he has already promised to bless? I like, Are your bold prayers pressing into God's willingness to answer the things that he has already told us to be about? Or is most of our prayer life spent on what I want? And if we were honest, we would probably say most of my prayer life is spent from my wish list, and then there's like 5% is like, oh yeah, God, please bless the missionaries while they do their work. So if he's commanded us, primarily as his church, as his people... To go and make disciples. How much of our prayer life is spent boldly asking God to help us make followers of Jesus? How much of our prayer life is spent boldly asking God to give us boldness to speak to people that we know need to know him? If you, I I still really don't know exactly what I ought to be praying for. I would encourage you to spend a bunch of time in Paul's letters in the New Testament, especially the second halves of his letters. There's a ton of practical application along there. How it is to to live in relationship with one another. How it is to live in a relationship with the Lord. Things that he commands us to do. Are those the things that we're praying boldly for him to help us with? Or is, again, most of our prayer time spent on, these are my items, this is what I would like. That's like the Christmas catalogs just started showing up at our house. Kids are running around, chasing me around the house saying, Dad, this is what I want for Christmas. And I have told them, point blank on many of them, you will not get that for Christmas. And yet, in their minds, guess what they still have? That's what I'm getting for Christmas. And I have told them, don't get your heart set on it. That's not what you're getting for Christmas. Yeah, but Dad, if I got that. You're not getting that for Christmas, but Dad, if I got that. And we can laugh, and we get frustrated when it's our kids, but I wonder how much of that reflects the way that we pray to the Lord. We say, I haven't told you to pray for that. I told you, that's not good for you. I'm not going to give you that. Yeah, but if I had that, if you would just give that to me, and and we're asking boldly for the things that he has point blank just said, no, that's not what I want you to spend your life on. And we go, yeah, but I I don't want that. Are we asking him boldly to change our desires so that they match his? So the things that we are asking for are presuming upon the things that he is already willing to say yes to. Because he knows what's best for you. So when he says no, it's not because he's angry at you. It's because he knows what's best for you. And the things that he says yes to are not to be like, they're often not the things that are just to be spent and exhausted on you in your little bubble. They're the things that are presuming to be a blessing to people around you. What are we praying for? And then are we asking boldly in line with who He is? I, Joshua asked for the sun to stand still. I don't think that I don't think the application this morning is for us to all go outside and stare at the sun and say, "Sun, stand still." But I do think the application for us this morning is if the Lord has already promised to be with his people to accomplish his purposes and to provision them with everything that it takes for life and godliness, are we asking him for everything that it takes for life and godliness? Is that our heart's desire? Are we gripped with that to where that is, the cry of our heart? That's the thing that we're begging him for. Are we begging him for more of his provision to walk with him in faith-filled obedience? Are we begging him... For the things that he's already said, nah, that's not for you. Are we asking for the things that he's already commanded, the things that he's already promised, the things that he already has revealed, this is what I care about? Or are we just launching up, this is what I care about, Lord, this is what I care about, this is what I care about, this is what I care about. Have you changed your mind yet, Lord, because this is what I care about. This is what I care about. This is what I want for Christmas. This is what I want for my birthday. If I wrapped up my Christmas and my birthday together, could I finally have that, please, Lord, please, please? Lord, you said this is, this is what your desire is for your people. Would you help me to do that? Would you help me to grow in that? And then watch as he fights right alongside of you for you and does the things that only he can do.